welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. We're in a series called The Wild Goose. It's a series on the Holy Spirit. The reason why it's called The the Wild Goose is because, and I feel like I need to like update each talk for folks who are just joining us, and that's fine. I'm happy to do so. It's because in... um, Uh, In Scotland, in Ireland, as the gospel and St. Patrick are like sweeping across the island, folks uh, in that part of the world were hearing about the Holy Spirit and they were hearing the symbolism of the Holy Spirit as a dove, right? You guys are familiar with that? Like the dove descends like a dove, the Spirit like a dove descending on Jesus as he's being baptized. And the, the Celts, the Celtic people just thought the symbol of a dove was just too tame for them. That wasn't the Holy Spirit that they knew. The Holy Spirit that they knew was more like a wild goose. It was abrasive in its, in its honking. It was, it was not domesticatable. It was not tame. The Holy Spirit wasn't an it. it it's a, he's a person, and he pursues us. And so we thought there was something of that in, uh, in what God is speaking to our church in the moment that God is not someone who can be controlled or contained. No one here this morning, this is good news, right? Right here. That no one here this morning has God in their back pocket. Right? Grace levels the playing field. We're all here. We're all broken. We're all jacked up. Welcome to the club. And the Holy Spirit's amazing. And no one's got God in their back pocket. Amazing. Okay, I'm done preaching. We'll have a great day. Um, Okay, and so this morning, I'm surprised that you all showed up because we're going to be talking about tongues and the gift of tongues and what that's about in our series on the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 14, there's a long list of what uh, the Apostle Paul calls pneumaticos. Um, in your Bible, it'll say spiritual gifts, but every translator, regardless of what side of the issue they are on or where they're at with the Holy Spirit, would all agree that that is a poor translation for what Paul is trying to communicate. The word pneumaticos is a Greek word. Um, it's, it's, it's an adjective without a noun. It's descriptive, it's describing, so an accurate um, translation would be spirituals. Or, in layman's terms, and I like this definition the best, this list that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 14 is the stuff the Spirit does. The stuff the Spirit does. And so as part of that, we've been going in-depth on each one of these manifestations of the Spirit, and this morning we arrive at tongues. Now, I wanted to share with you a little bit of my story surrounding this topic before we get going, because I have early memories of what, um, what is wrapped up in this for me. So I grew up in a, a reformed, a sort of a legalistic background growing up, but around about fourth grade in the, coming out of this church where it wasn't like acceptable to like raise your hands during worship, let's say or speak in tongues, or um, healing, forget about it. Like, God, we have doctors now. It was sort of like the mantra. God quit doing that. Like, once John finished writing, co-authoring the book of Revelation with God, uh, God dropped his cosmic pen and was like, I'm done speaking. Like, I'll see you at resurrection. Read your Bible. Peace. But that's where I grew up out of. Now, then, round about like fourth grade, my mom got this job at this charismatic school slash church. And so we went to this uh, charismatic school uh, from like fourth grade until like eighth grade. And my earliest, earliest memory... Uh, moving from that environment into like this hyper charismatic environment would be chapels, school chapels on Tuesday mornings. You guys, school chapels on Tuesday mornings, um, the, picture like this huge gymnasium. All the kids K through 12 were there, so it was like 10 of us. It, it was like a small private school. And this huge gymnasium, and they didn't have enough money for, like, really good, like, wooden gym floors. So it was, like, this blue rubber floor. 
And up on the stage was our music teacher to lead worship. And he was amazing, just an amazing musician. His name was Mr. Ice. And he was thin as a rail and probably like 6'5". Thin as a rail, like 6'5", flaming red hair with a tie and a white shirt on. And he's up there standing at the piano in the, in the rock stance. You know it? He's like ready to go. And then he'd pump up jams for us like, Jehovah Jireh, my provide. Who's tracking with me? Do you guys know this? Yeah. And so you've got Mr. Ice like going to town on the piano, right? He's like, come on, kids, sing it out. Come on. You know, and then, you know, I'm like a fourth grader and I'm like looking down the row and down the row is like crazy Mrs. Weber. She's so sweet. She was the kindergarten teacher of this school that I went to. And, you know, Mrs. Weber is there, and it's, you know, like the late 80s, early 90s, and she's got this crazy teased out, like three cans of hairspray hair, and then this dark, bright, royal blue eyeshadow. And during worship, you know, Mr. Ice is going to town, and Mrs. Weber is like giving her, and the blue eyes just crying just weeping, and she's going to town in her gift of tongues and her prayer language, and I'm like, what the heck is going on here? That was my earliest introduction to the gift of tongues, Mrs. Weber and the blue eyeshadow. I'll never forget it as long as I live. So then... Um, after that, I transferred back to this, the other private school, the more like reformed kind of private Christian school uh, for high school. And it was during our junior year that we went away at the beginning of the year to do like some kind of junior year retreat. And this is my earliest memory of like when the Holy Spirit really met, met us. And we were in this small A-frame cabin, all these, uh, um, all these kids, these, you know, 16, 17-year-old kids. And there was a Bible teacher there, and we were going to do some, like, campfire Bible study or whatever. And we're in this A-frame, and then all of a sudden, there was, like, a thickness. There was, like, a presence in the room. And I wasn't aware of it at the time. I, I was just like, hey, like, something's shifting in the atmosphere here. Well, I've come to find later, like, that was the presence of the Holy Spirit. Like, God was with us. And kids, for whatever reason, I mean, it wasn't like this Bible teacher was laying a whole bunch of guilt on us. It was just that the Spirit of God was moving. And kids started, like, taking out their cigarettes and, like, throwing packs of cigarettes in the middle. And some kids brought beer on the junior retreat. Yes, Christian school, 17-year-old kids, beer in their cabin, hidden beer in their cabin and bringing it out and laying it down. And pornography, guys would be bringing their porn magazines and, like, throwing them down. There was weeping and there was tears. And people were repenting before the Lord. And we all felt it. It wasn't just, like, the crazy Mrs. Weber in the corner. But it was all of us. And we stayed up all night night and we prayed and just sang hymns and it was amazing and it was like this first encounter with the Holy Spirit. Well, it takes more than uh, first time encounters with the Holy Spirit, as you might imagine, because I later went on to graduate high school and just fall into like massive drug addiction and massive drug abuse and just totally lost. I didn't want anything to do with God. I didn't want the Spirit of God in my life. And the Lord used a group of people in Columbus, at Vineyard Columbus, to draw me back to himself. And in those days, I went to this place called Joshua House. It was like a young adult gathering there at the church. And there were like 900,000 young adults, everybody my age. You know, it was like, um, it was amazing. I was like, why are all these kids my age coming to church and no one's making them go? And the air was, was charged, it was electric in the place, it was just like the sense of God's presence there was super strong. And I remember one night, I had just come back to faith, and we, uh, the pastor there had broken down the, the, the service into like um, small groups, so moved away all the chairs, and there were groups of like six to eight people, and we were all sitting in circles in small groups at Joshua House. And I was in a group with Sarah and a few others. And one of our friends was in that group, and we were praying together. And our friend Julie, just during the middle of this time together, looked at me, and she just said, Evan, I think that God wants to give you the gift of tongues tonight. 
And all of a sudden, these flashes back from like fourth grade and also the good time of like my junior year and meeting with God came suddenly rushing back in, this good and positive and negative kind of like experience of the Holy Spirit. And I just looked at Julie and I said, like it was some sort of flu or disease. I said, no, he doesn't. Why would he ever want to give me something like that? I said, no. And so I feel like it was important just to share kind of like my experience with the Holy Spirit. Later, I went on to, I, I would think, receive the gift of tongues. And I speak in tongues like all the time. It's like a beautiful thing of like intimacy with God. To develop this, this prayer language with God is just such a touching thing. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So the first thing that you need to know is that the gift of tongues is a thing, but it's not the thing. It's a thing, but it's not the thing. And we're going to be in Acts and 1 Corinthians this morning, and I'm going to hustle, I promise you. What time do the Browns play today? Oh my gosh, it's an afternoon game. You guys are in trouble. But you know what? Does anyone really care at this point? Jonathan care? <laughs> I was so hyped up at the beginning of the season. Oh, BJ, Baker Mayfield. We, the Browns need pneumaticos. They need a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Acts uh, chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. That's some Old Testament language there in imagery. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one had heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans, Galileans, then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, bunch of countries that don't exist and I can't pronounce anymore. Visitors from Rome, got that one. Both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Now, before we get into what does this mean, head over to Acts 10. Acts 10, starting in verse 44. Acts 10, starting in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, the Jews, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. Side note, you can't be a racist in the kingdom of God. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now Acts chapter 19, a couple pages over. Acts chapter 19, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, they answered no, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I love that. Holy, they're like, holy, huh? Holy, holy who? Who are you talking about? We have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked when then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism. They're talking about John the baptizer, if you know the story there. They replied, Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Okay, so... What happens, if you read these three passages, what happens when the Holy Spirit comes? Speak in tongues. They speak in tongues. Yes. But did you know that there are over 22 stories of believers coming to faith in the book of Acts alone? And you just read all three of them where the believers are filled with the Holy Spirit, and begin to speak in tongues. That's it. That's everything. So out of 22 stories, only three 
tell us that um, believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit begin to speak in tongues. That's it. That's everything. There's a little bit more in 1 Corinthians that we'll get after, but that's it. So I, want, I wanted to bring up three false teachings, and I don't believe that I'm using that too strongly there. Three false teachings on tongues, quickly. They are out there in the world. If, no, if you don't speak in tongues, you are not filled with the Spirit. It's like, um, I speak in tongues. Oh, you don't speak in tongues? It's, it's like, uh, oh, hmm. I'm not sure if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's like the sense of like, you know, if you book a flight and you're like in the economy and you walk by the first class and you peek in and the stewardess or the steward comes out and he says, oh, only folks who speak in tongues are here, and then quickly throws that sash across, you know, and like you can't see anymore. You're like, crap, now I'm with the crying baby. It's like the second-class citizen type of mentality. If you don't speak in tongues, then you're not filled with the Spirit. Another false teaching is that if you don't speak in tongues, then you're not even saved. You can't even board the plane. And there are folks out there that believe this and who teach this, and it's simply not true. We don't buy that here at Vineyard Cleveland. Just because you don't speak in tongues does not mean that you are not saved. Likewise, that you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. The third one is on the other side of the spectrum, and it's like this language of like tongues are not for today. It's just not for today. We don't really believe that because it's died out with the apostles. And the problem with this way of thinking is that nowhere in Scripture is that viewpoint underscored or emphasized. It's just simply not biblical. That tongues and the other manifestations of the Spirit, like healing, like prophecy, like a message of wisdom, that they all of a sudden ceased. Or cessation, you've heard of this term before if you're familiar with theology and theological terms, that the gifts or the manifestations of the Spirit died out with the early church. It's just simply not true that tongues are not for today. So these are three false teachings on this thing of tongues. So it begs the question, what does the New Testament say about it then? What does it say about it? Turn to 1 Corinthians 14. That's where we're going to be for this morning. I'm going to hustle, hustle, hustle through this. Okay. So, like we said before, right off the bat, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul writes this, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. That phrase, gifts of the Spirit, is um, a poor translation. Like we said, uh, it's the Greek word pneumatikos. It means desire the stuff that the Spirit does. And then he goes on to list those things. And if you were here a few weeks ago, we listed those out and went over each one of them them together, but basically Paul's about ready to talk about the stuff that the Spirit does. And verse, uh, chapter 14 is basically an um, outline of this like uh, pitting prophecy against tongues and comparing and contrasting the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. And what that looks like, so hear this, what, what that looks like in the Sunday gathering. So he's not, so Paul's not talking about you uh, alone on your hike in the Rocky River Reservation um, in the middle of winter, Ben Barnhart, or at other times he likes to walk in the snow. Um, He's talking about, this is what happens when we, the church, get together, what it looks like, these manifestations of the Holy Spirit, okay? So that's important. Um, Okay, so... It'd be helpful to define like what this word, okay, this word tongues is tricky. It's super tricky. Verse 2, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue 
edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Okay, so the church, um, the NIV committee, there's like a committee out there that translates the Greek texts into what we have today. And even within the NIV committee, they're not even sure, like, why the word tongue is in there. It's just weird to say. The Greek word is glossa. It's where we receive our English word glossary from. And all it means simply is other languages. It means other languages. So, with your permission, instead of tongues, I would like to use the phrase other languages from here moving forward because it's just less weird. So think other languages. So what is it? What is Paul talking about? These other languages. A, working, a good working definition that I found is this. A form, glossa, these other languages are a form of prayer or praise you express to God in a language you don't understand. If you want a more theological definition, I would turn to N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is like the world's foremost, it's funny that his name is Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. He's the world's foremost today in our age New Testament scholar, um, if not of all time. He's like a brilliant guy. He's an Anglican, and he happens to speak in tongues. Intellectual savant. He's just, like, brilliant. And he says this about tongues or other languages. It's the gift of speech, though making sounds and using apparent and or actual languages somehow bypasses the speaker's conscious mind. Now, that's enough to get started on for now, I believe. So, what we just read are uh, verses 2 through 6, and I believe that there are five things in this dense little, like, paragraph here from verses 2 through 6 that we can pick up. Five identifiers or five markers of these other languages. And what they are is, oh, 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 quickly we learn that these, well, for anyone who speaks in another language does not speak to people, but to God. So quickly we learn that anyone who is speaking in these other languages, prophecy is spoken to who? People. people. Other, these other languages are spoken to God. Next we learn that these languages don't make sense to you. It's not like you know Russian or you know Spanish from high school and you just start speaking that and you're edified, the scripture says, or you're built up. No, no, no. You don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you're saying. You don't understand. It's not making sense to you in your mind. Paul will talk more to that specifically in a minute. Next, we learn in the passage that it edifies the speaker, but does not edify the church. Edify is this old churchy word that we throw around in the church that's really not used in culture at all. But basically what it means is like it's a Greek, it's Greek construction terminology. Edifice or edify. It means to construct, to build up. So when you speak in these other languages, in this prayer language, you are building up your spirit. You are building up as you speak this to God. You are building yourself up. But Paul is saying it's not helpful in the gathered environment. Prophecy, on the other hand, is just the opposite. Prophecy works to build up the entire church. Tongues works to build up your own person. Next, what we learn is that, case in point, it's not nearly as important as prophecy. At the top of Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 14 is that believers would prophesy. Why? Again, the litmus test that it is useful for the entire church. It's helpful for the entire church. So at the top of Paul's list is prophecy. And lastly, that everybody should speak in these languages. Don't think that Paul is down on these other languages. He wants everybody to speak them. That everybody, his desire, eagerly desire the gift of glossa, the gift of these other languages. So those are the five markers that we, or identifiers that we learn 
right there from verses 2 through 6. Moving on quickly. In verse 6, now brothers and sisters, if I come to you on the Sunday gathering, yes? If I come to you and speak in other languages, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for a battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, or pneumaticos, since you are eager to see the stuff that the Spirit does, try to excel in those that build up the church. That's really good good. And what Paul is doing here is that he's using metaphors to draw out this truth. So I'd like to take those metaphors one by one. And the first metaphor he uses is music. Jonathan, where's Jonathan? Come on up, buddy. Hey, everybody. This is Jonathan Cool. Everybody welcome Jonathan. Let us beautifully. Jonathan is a super gifted keyboard player. If you, You're super gifted at keyboard. Did you know that? No. <laughs> He's trying to be humble right now. Look at him. Okay, now Jonathan will tell you that the first thing about a song or whatever or about music is that it needs to be set in a key. So give us like any key. Oh, can we turn that up so people can hear the loveliness? What key is that? Oh, that's the key of E. Isn't that beautiful? Hey, play us the E scale, will you? The E major. That's super beautiful. Well done. Well done, Jonathan. Okay, so a, a song or music needs to be set in a key, which Jonathan has done for us, and it also needs a meter. And meter is just like a fancy musician's term for rhythm. So four, four, three, four, six, eight, different timings. Hey, why don't you give us some BPM and like some mid-tempo, like average kind of, just play us a song. Yeah, come on. Now do you keep on going, keep on going. Do you hear the meter? One, two, three, four. And some of you are saying, oh, well done, Jonathan. Thank you. And some of you are singing along. This makes sense to you, yes? This is music. This is what good music sounds like, like very tastefully. Okay, now, Jonathan, play us a song that's not in a key and has no rhythm or meter. This might be impossible for Jonathan to do because he's an amazing musician. Look. Real fast, real fast. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, like, that just sounds like classical or like jazz. Like, what's the difference? But that was, that, here, watch out. He's, he's, is that, how's that? Is that, that's terrible. That's terrible, right? I could make it sound worse. Jonathan is like, yeah, boo, that was terrible. Hey, let's give Jonathan a hand. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Well done. Well done, well done. This is what Paul is saying, that speaking in glossa or speaking in other languages in a service in the gathered environment without an interpretation is like music with no key and no meter. You're like, ugh. What was that disgustingness? 
Next, Paul talks about a trumpet in battle. And I don't know what's used for like communication today in wars or whatever. But in the old days, if a trumpet was blown, there were different tunes to signify what you wanted your flank to do. Did you want them to move in on the enemy? Did you need them to retreat? And if these calls on the trumpet were fuzzy or unclear, it meant sometimes that people died. And Paul is saying that this is what other languages are like. If you use them in the gathered environment without an interpretation, it's like this fuzzy trumpet call that the flank is not able to hear when they're to advance and when they're to retreat. And then lastly, I'd like to invite my friend Dan Laszlo up. Hey, everybody, give it up for Dan. Hey! Now, Dan Laszlo is not a native English speaker, but speaks English very well. Dan, what is your na- what's your native language? Hungarian. It's Hungarian. Dan, would you say something to everyone in Hungarian? Ah, well done. Okay, well done. No, 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 stay put, stay put. Okay, so how many of you just found that your, like, life was just transformed by what Dan said? Like, how, like, was it just, okay, okay, pop a lot. Are you, but see, you're from Hungary. Okay, okay, we have other native Hungarian speakers in the house. Other than you... Who, who else found that that was just like the most powerful thing that they've ever heard in their world? It just changed. What did you say? I was just welcoming everybody and saying that we had a beautiful morning and enjoy the Browns game. Enjoy the Browns game. All right. <laughs> Life changing. Thank you, Dan. Give it up for Dan. So what Paul is saying here in the third metaphor is similar to what we just illustrated. That when these other languages are used in a gathered environment, they're, um, don't forbid it. Don't be down on it. He's not, he's not down on it. But he's just saying, is it useful? Is it teaching people in the gathered environment? Or is it simply used to edify yourself? And the third metaphor of Dan speaking Hungarian to a group of English speakers illustrates what Paul is trying to get at. Is that clear? Okay, cool. Thank you, Dan and Jonathan. Very, very good. Um, Moving on. In verse 13. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in another language, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, I love that language, praising God in the Spirit. Praising God in the Spirit. How can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you are saying? They have no idea what you're talking about. You are giving thanks well enough. You're doing a great job. Well done. Good on you. But no one else is built up. No one else is edified. No one else is edified. So we learn three things here. We learn, uh, firstly, that we are to pray for an interpretation. If we use this gift of other languages, we're to pray for interpretation. And we also learn that it's like your mind is in neutral. Paul is not saying that you're in some kind of trance. You're not like, oh, I'm out of it. But your mind is just sort of, you know, waiting. You're waiting. Your mind is in neutral. And then thirdly, he's saying that it's a form, this other languages in the Sunday gathered environment, it's a form of prayer and praise. Verse 18, quickly, I thank God, here's the bombshell moment, check this out. I thank God that I, Paul is talking about himself, that I speak in these other languages more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in another language. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. That's like Paul for like church, grow up. 
Grow up, church. Okay, so what Paul is saying, this is why this is such a huge moment right here. He's saying, I thank God that I speak in these other languages more than all of you. And in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in another language. What he's saying here is that um, you, you might not see me speaking in these other languages, but I'm in this thing all the time. Like, I don't do it on a Sunday, per se, with you all, but, like, I'm always in this thing. Why? Why is Paul saying that? And I'm with Paul here on this. He says then that he would rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 on a Sunday morning with people. And that Greek word for 10,000, it's the highest. It's not just like 10,000. So what's the highest number in English? After a trillion, I'm out. It's got math after it. I don't even know what it is. It, you, do you know? Yeah. It's, it's ungoogleable. The number is ungoogleable. And so what Paul is saying is like, I would rather speak like five, like Jesus Christ is Lord Messiah than like the highest number of words in a language because it doesn't edify the church. What does edify the church, and I hope, and I'm with him on this, so I, I hope what I'm doing right now is helpful or you just, if it's not, just pretend like it is for a second. Paul is saying like, I would hope that this is helpful for you. And so I'm not going to do that here, but I speak in a more than all of you. And the conjuncture here is that, and we don't know this for sure, is that the church at Corinth might have been doing like the thing of like, oh, who is Paul? Paul doesn't speak in tongues. Like who does he, all he does when he comes here is he speaks in Greek. He doesn't know these other languages that we do, right? And Paul is saying, no, I do. I'm in this thing all the time with you. Okay, moving forward really quickly. I know we got to scoot. I know we got to scoot. Don't think that Paul is down on it. There's a beauty of it. There's a beauty of the intimacy that it forms with you and God. There are times of intimacy, um, not here on a Sunday morning, but that just frankly, like I'm emotionally spent and I don't know what to pray. How many of you guys pray and like by three minutes you're out? You're just like, I'm out of stuff to say. I just really don't know what else to say. That's like all of us, right? We're like done within three minutes. Um, and it's in those times when I'm emotionally spent. I know something's broken. I don't know what to say to fix it to God. That I begin to speak in tongues. I begin to speak in this other language. And I don't understand it, but something then becomes right in my soul. Something then becomes connected in my soul to God. Likewise, in times of joy, you know, it's like how many times the fish in the river have heard me speaking in these other languages where life is just good and I'm out there on the river and I'm fishing and I'm speaking in tongues because like a Hillsong worship album or like a solid teaching is just not going to do it and you're just filled with love. It's like the sun is out in Cleveland today. Glory be! And you just don't know what else to do. And you begin to express your love to God in this other language, this prayer language. And it brings you closer to Jesus. It brings you closer to Jesus. And so in verse 26, what we see is that there's nothing wrong with it when it's used in the weekly gathering. But the litmus test is that is it good? Is it just good for you? Hey, are you just doing this to like hear yourself talk? Or is this going to be edifying or building the church up? And that's what Paul uses for a litmus test. So let's step back. What does this mean for us today? What does this mean for Vineyard Cleveland 2019? What does this mean for us? Over and over again, Paul tells us to eagerly desire these things. Eagerly desire the stuff that the Spirit does. And that translation, I can't stress enough why we're like, banning the word spiritual gifts from this conversation. Because if we understand it the way that Paul is saying it, it means that it's open to everybody and anyone who follows Jesus. Like this is for you. 
It's not just for like special ministry people. This is for all of us. The stuff the Spirit does is open to anybody who claims Jesus. That's huge. So there's a couple of different postures here. It's closed. You're like, oh, I don't want anything to do with us. This is weird. This is like emo. I don't know. what. <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. There's like open but cautious. You're like, yeah, which, which basically means that you're closed. <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest with one another. You're open but cautious. You're like, it's in the Bible, so like I have to believe it, but I really don't want to like move forward in this. And then there's like open. And we want to head towards open. And there's no how to. How do I do this? Remember, Paul talks about these manifestations of the Spirit are given by God's desire. It's not something that you can hype up or like prop up, but they're given by, they're, they're um, distributed by God in His timing. So there's no how to in Scripture. We're not told how to. But if I could submit to you just a few things that might be helpful are that we create space. Just create space. If you're eagerly desiring this, create space. Put down your phone. Turn the phone off. Close the shades at your workplace. In the morning with God, set aside like 15 minutes just to be with God. Create some space and ask him, God, if this is something that I'm to eagerly desire, I'm not there yet. Would you give me the desire? I want to be eager to desire this manifestation of the Holy Spirit. I need to express something to you that I can't put words to. God, would you give me this? And then just give it a shot. Like, what do you have to lose? It's not a big risk. Like, what will happen? You'll sit there and not say anything. And then practice it. You know, like a language, there's, you know, it doesn't make any sense to you, the speaker, but there's vocabulary that develops between you and God. There's a story that, there's syntax and adjectives and verbs. You don't even know what you're saying, but you begin to practice this. And then if all that doesn't work, just repeat steps one through four over and over and over and over again. Eagerly desire. So now the where to, we'll close here. The where to. It's really clear in verse, um, in chapter 14, that this is best done when it's in private. When you're alone with God, when it's just you and him, you don't know what to say. In that verse in Romans, but the spirit intercedes with you in groanings that you don't understand. This is best done in private with you and the Lord. And also, as Paul says in chapter 14 here, in times of gathered worship, you sing with your spirit. I know that Sarah and Jonathan and Billy and uh, Lauren and who, uh, do I have them all? Just love here. And I just love hearing when we sing together as a church. And y'all are taking risks. Like during worship, you'll just sing out. You know, it's like, doesn't have to be like Jonathan was saying, like words on the screen, but you're just singing out in the spirit. You're just praising God. You're ad-libbing and you're just like praising God. That's a time for you. That's a time for you to explore this. You know, whether it, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be this loud thing of like speaking in tongues like Mrs. Weber. It can just be this thing. You know, it's not a distraction because we're not worshiping you. We're worshiping Jesus. Like you're shouting out and you may be getting your rocks off and like praising God and you may feel really good, but the rest of us are distracted by that and we're not worshiping you. We're worshiping Jesus. Oh, the music's too loud. The music's too quiet. The music's too wordy. The music's not prophetic enough. Hey, newsflash, worship's not about you. We're not worshiping you today. Not worshiping you, we're worshiping Jesus. Get your eyes off of yourself, put your eyes on Jesus. And when you begin to sing in the Spirit, you'll find that there's a harmonious thing with the rest of the church. You're not sticking out like a sore thumb. <laughs> what? No, there's a harmony thing that happens. You're together with family, right? The key is family. Yeah, you're setting a family. So you don't have to get attention. 
See, when you're in a family, you don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to vie for attention by shouting out in these other languages, by shouting out just random things. You don't have to vie for anybody's attention here. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody here. You're set in a family. You're accepted. You belong. You're part of it. Well, you might say to me, well, because I'm part of it and because I'm a family, why should it matter if I shout out or not? Well, because you're just weird when you do that. And we're not a weird family. We're not that weird uncle. We're like a family who honors one another above ourselves. That's who we are. Ah, that was really good. Okay. So in times of... Um, in times, in gathered times of like um, ministry or praying, I wanted to end with these two stories. And then we're done, I promise. Oh my gosh! Oh, it's not 12.45, is it? Oh, we're fine. We're fine. <laughs> so our friend, our friend Kirsta, I called her this week and chatted with her about this because she has this amazing story. Her name's Kirsta and she lives in Columbus. And she spent a summer with Mother Teresa and her home for the dying in Calcutta in India years ago. And while she was in, and I called her because I, what I realized is that I've always told this story secondhand, like from Sarah, and I'd never like heard it from Kirsta directly, and I felt like I needed to do that. So Kirsta, as Kirsta tells the story, she's like hanging out in India, and those of you who have been to India before know that it's like a spiritually open place. It's awake. It's woke. As they say this morning, I'm hitting 40, but it's woke. India's woke, y'all. So, um, it's, it's awake, but it's also very oppressive. It's a very oppressive, like, culture. And so while Kirsta is there over the course of the summer, she just found her spirit just being, like, beat up by the day in, day out, seeing people in the slums, people dying, lice in their hair, and just sores, TB, HIV, AIDS, all of this stuff. She's working with a ministry who helps people die well. Mother Teresa cares for people who, who, to give them honor before they die. It's a beautiful thing. No one else is doing that. So Jesus, that's where Jesus is. And so Kirsten is there, and she just found that her spirit like, couldn't take all of this weight, this burden. So she began to there like, speak in these other tongues, in these languages, as she woke up. And she found that as she spoke in tongues, she spoke in these other languages, in her prayer language, that she was strengthened for the day. She was built up to face the day. And she would find that when she wouldn't, she would just be at the end of her day like, oh, I want to go home. I'm done with this. It's too much. The weight is too heavy. Anyway, the way that her, Mother Teresa's ministry works is that these people are just left by their families at the railroad tracks. They're just dumped out of the cars in the railroad tracks to die in Calcutta. Mother Teresa will deal with them. They're going to die anyway. Family members just don't even care. Drop them off there at the train station. So one such woman who, she doesn't even know her name, it's so crazy, is dropped off. She has TB, and she's about to die. Her hair is just infested with lice, sores all over her body. She's brought into Mother Teresa's home for the dying, and Kirsta begins to pray and to care for her. And as Kirsta is just caught up in this moment of, like, shaving, her job was to, like, shave the women's hair. And Hair, women's hair in, in an Indian context, it's like the most precious thing to them, to their physical body is their hair. But they're infested with lice, so it's like a healthy thing to shave their hair, but it's also this devaluing and shame-filled thing. And there's, this woman, is just, her hair is infested with lice, and as Kirsa is shaving this woman's head, just begins, she doesn't know why, but just is caught in the moment and begins to speak in her other language. Mind you, no one knows this woman there. No one knows her family, anything. And as soon as Kirsta begins to speak in these other languages, in this prayer language, she was from, this woman is from a region that like no one spoke her language. No one could, no one even at the home could communicate with her. As she began to sp speak her language, the woman's countenance changed. She looks up from crying, from tears, and then she speaks back in her own native tongue. And Kirsten's like, okay, go with it. <laughs> and then starts speaking in her prayer language again. And stops. And then the woman speaks back to her again. 
And there's like this conversation, and Kirsta has no idea what she's saying to this woman. Kirsta says, after that encounter, this woman was completely different. She faced every moment. She died like four days later. She faced every moment with courage, and she, she didn't die alone. She died with people surrounding her, holding her hands, and with a smile on her face and courage, which was completely different than before when Kirsa had prayed for her. The other story I wanted to tell you is one of um, Mike Pivlacci, who um, Paul is saying in this chapter, like, don't forbid it. Don't forbid speaking in these other languages in the gathered environment. But like, where prophecy is like two to three people minimum, like he wants everybody to prophesy, He's saying tongues two to three max, like cut it off there. And so long as it has an interpretation. So he's not downing it in the gathered meeting. Quick story. Mike Pivolacci, who is the founder of like Soul Survivor, speaks to tens of thousands of young adults every year. He spoke at the Vineyard National Conference this past summer. He's speaking in Europe on this one occasion. And it's a tent that's just filled tens of thousands of young people. And speaking on the gifts of the Spirit. And there's this one kid in the, in the congregation, in the audience, and he's just not having it. He had grown up later, he finds out, he'd grown up in like this reformed environment that was like so anti the gifts and so anti the things of the Holy Spirit. And he gets so angry at Mike, he's like shaking this kid, this young adult. And he can't hear it anymore. And so he gets up and he starts turning to walk away. And in that moment, Pivolacci like just hears from the Spirit to start using his prayer language. And so he starts speaking out in his prayer, in the gift of tongues, he starts speaking out in his prayer language. The kid who is turning around, he's Romanian. The kid who's walking out stops dead in his tracks and falls to his knees. Well, later what we hear from this kid is that Mike was speaking this ancient Romanian dialect that like no one speaks anymore. Not only that, but it was this, this kid who was so anti like the things of the spirit. It, it was a scripture verse that was tattooed on his father's back. What Mike was saying word for word verbatim. Word for word on his, his father's back. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Like, how do you say, you can't explain that. How do you explain that? You just can't. Why don't you join me in standing? You know, this thing of, like, other languages, I, I do feel like God would want to give some of you, like, the ability to, like, use this gift of other languages Um, as, a, as a form to build intimacy between you and him. And you may be like open, but you're cautious or whatever. Hey, this is a safe place for you. And, you know, this isn't about a spiritual high, although there's like times for that, right, in our lives. It's like a holistic kind of approach. And it's not about like some spiritual experience but it's about a lifelong pursuit of intimacy with God. And um, the deal is intimacy. That's it. Let's just see what God would want to say.